Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of What Are You Talking About, presented by FenleyRoadSports.com. My name is Bob. As always, I'm hanging out talking sports with my older brother, Chris. Chris, what's up, man? Not much. College football's regular season is mostly done, and pretty much everything we expected happen would happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had a we had a kind of a debate last week and that was all a big hypothetical debate because none of the things that we were arguing over happened. Uh, Clemson won, Alabama won, uh, Oklahoma stood pat like we predicted and the winner of that big 10 title game between Iowa and Michigan state rounded out the top four, uh, not in that order. Uh, but that's, that's our college football playoff field. Um, what were your thoughts of those championship games? I thought the Big Ten championship game, and again, don't accuse me of being biased, but it was the most exciting of the bunch. It came down to a last-second touchdown. Iowa trying to dig in and stop them. Michigan State, uh, fantastic game that came down to the wire. If you don't like defensive games, that was not the game for you. That was Big Ten football embodied right there. And I don't even think it was bad offense. I think it was good defense because the offense was moving the balls well, but then the defense would dig in and just not let them score a touchdown at least. There were a lot of field goals, very tightly contested. Iowa impressed me um, because Michigan State was by far the best opponent they played, though I don't think Northwestern's getting enough respect. But still, a very weak resume outside of that Northwestern win. They went toe-to-toe with the team that a lot of people thought would roll them in that Big Ten championship game, and they, they could have won. I mean, they lost in the last seconds of the game. A stat I saw after that game was Iowa had never trailed in the fourth quarter until Michigan State took the lead in that those last like 30 seconds. So in all of their games, they had the lead for every second of the fourth quarter, except for that one. So Hawkeyes fans certainly feel a little bit dejected, but a Rose Bowl bid, a 12-1 season, I, I think that if you were to tell Iowa fans that before the year began, they would have been elated. So certainly a lot of bright side for Iowa. Um, what about you? What What game did you watch closest and did you like the most well that one was definitely good uh unfortunately whoever scheduled the conference championship game i'm really mad at because we had three conference championship games going on prom time on saturday they could have spread it out a little bit easier for us i mean we had the pac-12 the acc and the big 10 all going at around seven o'clock uh on saturday so that was a little annoying um I, i did like michigan state iowa that's uh a good uh, change of pace for college football to see two teams kind of play some defense and, and a low scoring game. Michigan State, you know, with a walk off win against Michigan, Ohio State, and then a walk off drive really against Iowa. I mean, Michigan State has some karma going for him in this year. And it, you know, you have to wonder if that's kind of like the team of destiny going forward. But for me, uh, just to talk about another game, I mean, North Carolina versus Clemson was far more competitive than I thought it would be. Uh, North Carolina very similarly to Iowa, uh, you know, arguable if they had, if a college football playoff berth was at stake for North Carolina, but they did have something to prove coming in 11 and one, an 11 game winning streak that, that terrible loss to South Carolina to start off their year. And they hung with, with Clemson. They hung all the way into the third quarter until they, they were, uh, had a goal line opportunity to, to score a go ahead touchdown. Clemson intercepts the ball at the three yard line, 
then Deshaun Watson marches the ball all the way back to the other end to score a go just to further the, the lead for Clemson. Deshaun Watson at the end of that game, three passing touchdowns, two rushing touchdowns, 131 yards rushing and 289 yards passing. Uh, if that that's quite the way to cap off a Heisman campaign ending with an undefeated season, a number one ranking, an ACC championship, and just a boatload of stats in that championship game. So that was really fun to watch. If you're not too much, too into defense, I think UNC Clemson was a close second. Certainly. I liked North Carolina. I made a lot of arguments for North Carolina on Facebook. And then I realized that they played two FCS teams on the regular season. Come on, man. You can't be playing two FCS teams in the regular season. I'm pretty sure you called out that teams like that who schedule down to week. I actually think that if you schedule two FCS teams, you should be ineligible for the playoffs. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think um, there need to be more regulations in your out-of-conference scheduling uh, punishments if you schedule down and rewards if you if you schedule up. Oh, certainly. And I think that we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I think that Right now, it seems like the committee is placing an emphasis, a huge emphasis, on these conference championship games, especially with the way Michigan State leapfrogged Oklahoma, which was a slight surprise, not a huge surprise because a lot of the analysts saw it coming the day of. But I think going into the weekend, most people thought that the Big Ten winner would lock into the four spot and not the three Bob, what do you think about this this whole conference championship dynamic? Do you think that teams that don't play in these conference championship games, like Independence or the Big 12, do you think they're at a disadvantage by not playing in these things? Yeah, I think I think they certainly are at a disadvantage. I don't think a Big 12 champ, if they're undefeated, will ever be denied one of those four college football playoff berths. But if you have a loss and you stand pat while these conference championship games are going on that means six really good teams are playing a marquee matchup to cap off their season where a with a championship at stake while you are sitting at home I mean it's hard to not be swayed by that if you're a voter to see one person not doing anything and then see the other team putting their neck out and playing a a high stakes game so uh, it, it doesn't surprise me I actually thought that that scenario is very likely that the Big Ten champ would, would get slotted in at number three just because as good as Oklahoma has been I mean they're already fading from our minds because we had six really good teams going up against each other yeah and it's not like that Big Ten title game was a number four versus a four loss team I mean it was four v five it's as close to a quarterfinal as you get because I mean it makes sense that Michigan State would move up to three after winning that game you could argue that they should move up to two after winning that game, after beating such a high-quality opponent at the end. Now, that doesn't make that much of a difference because, as I've said before, the Big Ten doesn't have any of those New Year's Six Bowls in its regional sphere. So Michigan State being the quote-unquote two seed, I mean, what regional site are you going to give them? The Cotton Bowl or the Orange Bowl? I mean, Alabama's going to have an advantage in that neutrality. I mean, it's much closer. It's in the South. Even if Michigan State were number two, they would gain nothing from it except the number next to their team as opposed – they wouldn't gain any sort of seating or regional placement advantage from it. But the point is, I think these teams that are not in a conference championship, like Notre Dame, 
BYU, the Big 12, they're going to have to take a long, hard look at their future, especially Notre Dame, because Notre Dame is a team that brands itself very well. It plays games on the East Coast. It has West Coast games. It has that deal with the ACC where it, it travels to the East Coast a lot. It always plays either USC or Stanford on the road, one at home. It is a very national brand, but is it willing to sacrifice that to get that 13th game, to get into a conference championship game? And if so, which conference is going to snag it? The Big Ten has been courting it forever. The ACC, they have more of a comfort relationship with because they're in their ACC for all other sports. I think it's going to be an interesting dynamic, and I think that this emphasis on conference championship games might ignite some more expansion talk in the future as conferences and independents try to lobby for better positioning for the playoff. Yeah, I, I think that's a very likely possibility. I think a lot of these schools probably know a little bit more about the the inside tract and momentum of, of what's going on in the NCAA. You know, if, if the field expands to eight, then the problem is solved because uh, Ohio State, the the highest ranked non-conference champion, and then Notre Dame, they, they both would have made a field of eight. So if a college football playoff is, expansion is coming, I don't think Notre Dame is really going to be inspired to to sacrifice their their flexibility and and their uh you know prime time status as, as a college football program so uh i think the decisions that we see in the next year or two from the big 12 from notre dame that's going to be pretty indicative to whether we are going to see a college football playoff expansion yeah i agree with you i think the college football will expand by the end of its first contract if not sooner i wrote about this on the blog friendlyroadsports.com blog and you're right. I think that if it does go to eight, it solves itself. You can actually go to a de facto sort of half 16 team tournament. If you go to eight and make your conference champions of the power five automatic qualifiers, then those four games in the Pac-12, Big Ten, ACC, and SEC are de facto wild card games because the winner of those games would go to the college football playoff. And so I think that that kind of an allure to raise those conference championship games to the level of wild card status and add a whole nother round of playoff games with huge money, make more bowl games even more relevant. I just think there's so much money on the line and eight is such a perfect number that we're going to see an 18, 18 playoff in the future but it's going to be interesting because not to derail this from the immediate college football playoff, but if the last two years the committee has had a pretty easy time, realistically speaking. Last year, Ohio State was a slight curveball, but after beating Wisconsin 59 to nothing in the Big Ten title game, I don't think anyone was surprised to see them in the four spot. This year was all chalk, nothing happened. The committee has not been faced with a oh my gosh, what do we do now? Like Clemson losing to North Carolina or Alabama losing to Florida or something of that level just yet. Or like a four-loss team or USC if Stanford only had one loss, knocking them off, things like that. They have not faced an oh my gosh moment in their two-year history here. I think it'll be interesting to see what kind of precedents they set when they're faced with that kind of chaos. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think you could you heard a collective sigh of relief from those committee members when when the results were in Saturday and Clemson came out on top and Alabama came out on top because you know there are some hard decisions that would have had to been made if one of those teams lost. So 
you know, I, I was kind of interested to see what exactly would have happened if, if one of those teams lost just to, to get an idea of just what the committee values more than, than, than what they value more than, than other things. And then conference championships, because right now it's pretty clear that if you win your conference with one loss, you're going to the playoff. I don't think a one loss power five champion is not going to be in the playoff unless there are five of them. Obviously one of them would have to be let off. But right now, if you're undefeated, you're going at Power 5 or Notre Dame. And if you win the Power 5 with one loss, you're going. The intrigue, the intrigue gets is if that one loss team then loses in the conference title game. Or if there's some monkey wrenches thrown. Or, heaven forbid, there are two upsets. Say Stanford and Alabama lost. Or Clemson and Alabama both lost. They haven't had to deal with chaos yet. And I'm with you. I kind of wanted one of them to happen because I kind of wanted to see what other things they would value. Right now, all we know is that if you win your conference or go undefeated, you're going to get in. But those are things I could have told you before this playoff even started. You know, I mean, we haven't learned what the priority is. Do they value strength of schedule? Do they value playing in a tough conference? Do they value what do they value? Is it non-conference schedule? Is it conference schedule? We don't know yet because they haven't been faced with these very tough decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that being said, I I kind of am glad that there's another side of me that is glad that didn't happen because we have four, no doubt about it, these are the four conference playoff teams. There's not a fifth team whining out there that says like, oh, we could have we beat Oklahoma, we could have beat Clemson. This is it. And you know, I have no doubt that the Stanford, Ohio State, Notre Dame, they, they could go toe to toe with these teams, but they they had their shots and they and they they lost. Uh, Notre Dame and Ohio State particularly lost to Michigan State and Clemson, so they had their chances. And these are the four that we're left with. No debate about it. Let's have a playoff, and and it's going to be real fun. Yeah, quite literally too. I mean, Stanford had its shot. You can't have you can't lose twice and whine. I'm sorry, I said it last week. We got into a bit of a debate about it, but to me, if you lose twice. No, you, you've played your way out of it. Uh, Alabama beat the SC, all the SEC teams. A lot of them had a shot. Heck, you know, Florida only had one loss, even though I don't think they would have gotten in. But, uh, excuse me, they lost to Florida State. They, they had, had two, two losses. losses. That's yeah. my fault. Um, so, yeah, Florida definitely wasn't getting in. But you're right. With uh, Notre Dame and Ohio State, the what-if bowl down in uh, Arizona, They Notre Dame had Clemson on the ropes. I wrote about their two-point conversion mishap. If they don't kick, go for two, they're at least playing overtime, and who knows what happens. So they could have beat that, and, and Ohio State lost to Michigan State on a last-second field goal. So both of those teams had their chances. Iowa had its chance. Every team on the bubble, every team playing, and Florida State had a chance to beat Clemson as well. So every team that's playing in a New Year's Six Bowl, except for Houston, had a shot at this thing, and they didn't capitalize off of it. So I don't have sympathy for any of them, really. Yeah, me neither. All right, so um, really the, the only exciting thing that happened was Michigan State moving from that five ranking after beating number four Iowa, leapfrogging Oklahoma, and then taking that number three spot. So the the only thing that changed is instead of a matchup for Michigan State against Clemson, who is the number one seed, is undefeated, now they're facing Alabama. And my question to you is, you know, did if you're Michigan State, would you have preferred to be that four seed or do you think they're in a better position in the three seed 
uh, just in terms of matchup because Clemson and Alabama are two very different teams. Yes, they are very different teams. It's hard for me to say I'd rather play the team that's lost a game as opposed to the undefeated team with a possible Heisman front runner. We'll get to that in a minute, but I don't know. I don't really think there's a would you rather play him or would you rather play them. All four of these teams can beat all four of these teams. I mean, you stack it up however you want. There's no easy ride to this thing. So I don't necessarily think Michigan State got a bad draw or anything like that. I don't think Clemson is any easier than Alabama. I know people on television were talking about the matchups. And from an Alabama standpoint, that is true. They do struggle to defend the mobile quarterback. And Connor Cook is not that. He's more of a traditional guy. But he still talked about being a first-round draft pick next year, and he can make a lot of really good throws, and he's going to have a lot of time to heal that ailing shoulder of his. So I don't necessarily think Alabama particularly wants to face a team like Michigan State that can grit it out just like they can, that's built on defense, and Alabama's quarterback is not to the caliber of Connor Cook. So you know, I think I think you can toss this up however you want. There's no easy ride in this playoff. This isn't the NCAA basketball tournament where the number one seed gets essentially a breeze walk to the Sweet 16. You're in the Final Four. Any one of these teams can beat anyone. Yeah, I don't think um, the matchups are, you know, these these are the four best teams. So they absolutely can beat any any of these three teams, the other three teams. I don't think Michigan State is at a advantage or a disadvantage playing Clemson or Alabama. But I do think Alabama is a little bit thankful that they got Michigan state and not Oklahoma, just because of some of the things you mentioned, uh, a mobile quarterback that can make plays, extend the time, make really big kind of playmaking uh, third down and long conversions. Uh, Baker Mayfield has, has made a Heisman campaign out of those kind of plays. So for Alabama, I think it plays well for them That being said, I don't think it's a a huge, I don't think it's an advantage or anything. I just think that Michigan State kind of fits into the, into their comfort zone in terms of being able to to do what they want on defense. And the story writes itself, Nick Saban coaching against the team he coached in the nineties. I mean, that's one heck of a storyline. Then you go down to Miami, the orange bowl, you're going to have two fantastic quarterbacks, very similar styles playing against one another. Oklahoma got destroyed by Clemson in their bowl game last year, so might be a little bit revenge on the mind of the Sooners. And Oklahoma has quietly, maybe not so quietly anymore, but for a while there, they were kind of going under the radar after they lost to Texas. Everyone was so quick to say Baylor, TCU, and then eventually Oklahoma State. But Oklahoma beat them all and won that Big 12 with just one loss and oddly enough only lost to Texas. So... Oklahoma could be the hottest team heading into this postseason. Yeah, I think so. If I were to rank the the teams I don't want to play, I think I'd put Oklahoma at the top. Uh, maybe the extra week off will will cool them off a little bit, but everyone's going into a little bit of a hibernation now, so uh, we will we'll have to wait and see a few weeks to, to see exactly what these teams do with their off time. Connor Cook's injury, like you said, is a key, key part of that, get that shoulder healthy because – uh, he need, he needs to be play, playing at, at full speed. That is the best part of the college football playoff. I'd hate when the season ends and you have to wait till January 7th or 11th for the big game. That is like six weeks off. Now it's just three and a half. So they get through finals and then they play New Year's Day. I can live with three and a half. 
the the break before from the end of the regular season to the BCS final, it just destroyed all the momentum. I mean, you think about it. That's like half of a college football regular season. Six weeks between the end of the season and the final with nothing in between except a bunch of Cracker Jack Bulls that don't count for anything. Come on, man. At least I love the fact that we actually have some games that have some some backing to them that are meaningful between now and the national championship. And I'm excited for both of these semifinal games because I think that they're going to be very close. I it, It's a hard tournament to pick as, as far as I'm concerned. I don't necessarily see an overwhelming favorite here. Yeah, absolutely. I don't I don't see an overwhelming favorite either. Um you know that that's kind of been the theme of this year is that you know even Clemson, who is undefeated, who has occupied that number one spot for uh, the latter half of the season, uh, you know they don't look like a dominant number one team. I mean, they look like a very good team, but they they uh, definitely show signs of weaknesses. So I think it's great that we have a playoff and kind of decide that. Uh, that definitely is not a for sure number one and a for sure number two. So that that's really good. And continuing that, I mean, even the Heisman race itself has has no clear front runner after an entire NCAA football season. There are lots of guys you can make an argument for. The presentation ceremony is coming up this Saturday. Chris, do you have a top four or do you have a favorite? Well, I do have a top four. It's probably not going to look that much different from most people's top four. I don't know if I have a favorite, um, but I think Deshaun Watson of Clemson, Baker Mayfield of Oklahoma, Christian McCafferty of Stanford, and Derrick Henry of Alabama will be the four invitees. A possible outside chance that Ezekiel Elliott of Ohio State gets invited because the guy ran for 100 or more yards in 11 out of 12 games and was the heart and soul and really the only reason Ohio State was flirting with the playoffs, to be honest with you, by far their most valuable player this year. I think he could get an invite, and you could see five people. Generally, the Heisman fluctuates between three and five invites, four being the average. So maybe he'll get a fifth up there this year. But I wouldn't be mad if Keenan Reynolds of Navy got an invite at least. I don't think those last two, Elliott and Reynolds, would win. But it would be nice to see one of them at least get an invite just to nod to the fantastic seasons they had. But the four I mentioned earlier, I think, are the... The guys who will be competing for it, the finalists, if you will. And it's very tough for me to pick a winner among those four. Bob, do you like any? Uh, do you have anyone different in your four, or or do you have a favorite? Uh, the, the four you mentioned, Mayfield, Watson, Henry, and McCaffrey, are absolutely the top four Heisman finalists. Uh, I don't see how uh, anybody else is going to enter that top four. I, Reynolds and Elliott are definitely going to get some votes. I don't think that they're going to get invited to New York. Um, McCaffrey had a really amazing season, breaking that Barry Sanders all-purpose yardage record, a season, uh, a record that has stood for 27 years despite uh, players playing two more games than Sanders for about 10 years now. So it, that's a really impressive feat. But Stanford didn't get in the college football playoffs, so I'm kind of ruling him out. I'm kind of ruling Baker Mayfield out just because he didn't play that last weekend. And I think uh, while he was sitting on the sidelines, McCaffrey, Henry, and Watson had some of their best games and, and best moments. Mayfield's best moment was probably in the first month of the season when they were at Tennessee with that amazing fourth quarter comeback that they had. 
So I think it's down to Henry and Watson. I have a feeling that it's going towards Henry because he's an Alabama running back and Alabama is, is the number two ranked team. I think it's hard to, uh, you know, go against history, I guess, unfair or not. I'm just going to argue in favor for Watson because he's the quarterback. He's a running mobile quarterback, has scored over 10 touchdowns on his legs, 800 yards rushing. Clemson has never had a Heisman Trophy winner, though, fun trivia, John Heisman himself did did coach Clemson football in the early 1900s. So it's time to bring a Heisman Trophy to Clemson when a field is this tight. They're the only undefeated team. I think Watson's a very deserving winner. All four of these guys are very deserving, but I'm going to argue for Watson. Well, I'm not going to argue. Well, I am going to argue against Watson, but not in a very hardcore way. I certainly wouldn't be surprised or disappointed if Watson won it. He's a quarterback of an undefeated team and had a phenomenal statistical year, so certainly very deserving. All of these guys are deserving, but last week I had some harsh words for Stanford. This week I watched them play for you know one of the few times because they play on the west coast it's hard to see some of the pac-12 teams play so this is one of the few times i actually got to see them play against usc and my goodness man that christian McCaffrey kid he is a fantastic player 207 rushing yards and 105 receiving yards in the pac-12 championship game if that's not doing a passing touchdown and a passing touchdown so if that's not doing everything you can to make your claim for the Heisman, I don't know what is. This guy was everywhere. He's six foot one, two hundred one pounds. He lines up everywhere on the field. He can he play running back, receiver. He feels like a guy the New England Patriots would trot out or something like that because they always seem to have guys who just play every position on the field. And being a Patriots fan, that, that's the first thought that popped into my mind. I'm like, Bill Belichick has to be just licking his chops trying to draft this guy. I don't know, man. If I had a vote, I would vote for him because he looked like the most versatile player I had seen play this year. With all due respect to the other three candidates, I do think it's going to be an exceptionally close vote. And I think it's going to be between the two you mentioned and McCafferty. I think Baker Mayfield will be the fourth now watch, he'll win it. But I do think he will finish fourth in that race. And I think it's going to be one of the closest votes we've seen because I think McCafferty just had the biggest signature performance of them all in the biggest moment of the season for Stanford. I think he could, I think he's going to win it, and but it wouldn't surprise me if he didn't because I think it's going to be nip-tuck very close. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's going to be a very close uh, vote vote finish. Um, he had a big night. Uh, I talked about Watson's night earlier. Derrick Henry, the last two games, he's rushed the ball 90 times for over 450 <laughs> yards. You know what's coming with Alabama, and he just keeps pounding it in for over 1,900 yards. That breaks Herschel Rock- Walker's SEC record for most rushing yards in the, in the SEC Derrick Henry did it in more games, but he did it in less carries than Herschel Walker. So that's pretty impressive. 23 rushing touchdowns. I mean, all three of those guys are very qualified and had signature nights in those conference championship games. So uh, I, I don't know who it's going to be very interesting. I, I, I have a feeling it's going to go towards Henry. 
I like your argument for McCaffrey and I'm arguing for Watson. I, I really don't know where it's going to go. I actually think you're going to see one of the closest tallies in the history of this race. I think you're going to see three guys garner a lot of first place votes. And it wouldn't surprise me if it's just a nip tuck of vote here or vote there deciding this thing. I think it's going to come down to the wire. It's one of the most exciting Heisman trophy presentations I can remember because a lot of times I don't even watch it because I just know who's going to win. I have no idea who's going to win this award. I, I think all three of them just had fantastic years. If you're if you're asking me who I'd vote for, I would vote for McCafferty. I've seen all of them play live now. McCafferty is the guy who I thought was the most versatile and jumped out at me. But if you gave it to any of the other guys, I, I wouldn't you know hang you for it or anything. I just would vote for McCafferty, and I think it's going to be fun to see what the final tally is because I think it's going to be one of the closest votes in history. I think if if Stanford had a playoff berth, I think it would be McCaffrey's to lose. But the fact that they're looking in and the other three guys are all in the playoffs, I think it's a level playing field. Yeah, I agree with that. I think if McCaffrey were in the playoffs, certainly he'd be the overwhelming front runner. I mean, the total yardage, I mean, he's got 1,800-some rushing yards, and then his receiving yards are off the chart too. I mean, the guy is just, he's Mr. Do-It-All. He has two 100-yard receiving games, Three 200-yard rushing games with a 192-yard rushing game. He rushed for 100 yards in every game except for three, and one of those was a 94-yard rushing game. He combined for 100 total yards in every game except for one. He had 89 in that, that one game I'm alluding to, his first game against Northwestern. The guy has just been a beast, and quite frankly, you know, like I said, I'm arguing for him, but the other... Three guys have great stats, too, just jumping off the page. So I think it's going to be nip-tuck very close. And, and if I had a ballot, I'd vote for McCafferty. Um, I'm kind of glad I don't because it would be an agonizing decision. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it might be more controversial than the college football playoff itself. So it uh, gives reason to actually watch that ceremony because I, I never watch it, but I actually might tune in. Well, tune in for like the last... 10 minutes because they started an hour before they released the phone (laughs) (laughs) but anyway is there any of the between the college football of the new year six bowls just one last thought on college football before we move on any of the bowls that jump out to you of the other four bowl games of the other four matchups we got iowa versus stanford slightly controversial we got ohio state notre dame we've got florida state and houston and then we've got oklahoma state and Mississippi. Did any of those matchups jump out at you as... Because I, I, I watch all the New Year's Six Bowls no matter what, but which one of the non-playoff bowls are you most excited for? Um, Man, that, that's actually really tough. You know, I, I'm interested to see Iowa versus Stanford. Uh, I think that'll be a really good game. It'll be very interesting to see. You know, Iowa stepped up against Michigan State. You know, I, I think... I'm not the only one who kind of has still has doubts that Iowa is this good so suddenly. So it'll be interesting to see them going up against the Pac-12 champion. I think that's a, a will be a very interesting game to watch. Yeah, me too, especially because their style of plays are similar. Stanford plays like a Big Ten team. Iowa is your traditional Big Ten team, tried and true. Very tough defense, grinded out offense. Obviously, they're going to have to stop McCafferty. So that'll be a fun matchup to watch. It's in Pasadena, so kind of a advantage Stanford from the quote-unquote neutral site, site standpoint. But 
Certain, well, that's how the Rose Bowl it, it, always well, is. Yeah, if it it's a traditional. I, I, no, I understand, but but I mean, when the Big Ten's coming west to play the Pac-12, I mean, it's not a true neutral site when you're in Pac-12 country, especially when a te- if a Southern California team is playing there. But I'm not trying to say anything, but it, but it is a factor. And the other one I'm most excited for, and again, I don't want you to think I'm an Ohio State homer here, but Ohio State Notre Dame, it's a pretty big matchup. It's the what-if bowl. Both of these teams had a shot. I think if Notre Dame beats Clemson, they're in. If Ohio State beats Michigan State, and then, of course, goes on to beat Iowa, they're in. So both of these teams were very, very close, a play away from possibly playing in this tournament themselves. Uh, You have Deshaun Kaiser, who's a quarterback from Ohio, going up against Ohio State, won a championship, a state championship in Ohio, so certainly a nice matchup there. Urban Meyer trying to get his team motivated after national championship aspirations for most of the season. I think that'll be a fun matchup as well. The other two, I'm certainly going to watch. I'm certainly interested in. I'm always interested in seeing the outsider try to take on the establishment. This year it's Houston in the Peach Bowl against Florida State. Um, I think the one I'd probably be least motivated to watch would be Ole Miss and Oklahoma State just because I'm not as attached to those two teams but I'm certainly going to watch them all but Notre Dame Ohio State and then Stanford Iowa would be the two I'm most interested in yeah and you know those are the eighth through fifth ranked teams so naturally those those are the most exciting matchups but I think it's a I think they did they did a good job naming those bulls uh even the the other good ones that are that are around there northwestern versus tennessee and michigan versus florida i mean there, there's a lot of really good football that's gonna be played that day i like that the committee sets these matchups in a way now with their rankings that they've gotten the bowls on the same page to get good teams in these bowls you remember that year when georgia was gonna go to the rose bowl but they didn't and the rose bowl picked illinois to face usc and georgia went to the sugar bowl to face hawaii we could have had USC Georgia in the Rose Bowl. Instead, we had USC beatdown of Illinois and a Georgia beatdown of Hawaii. And the why are we watching these bowls? You know, like I am so glad that the committee can place these teams and has a little power to dictate some really strong matchups in these things. Because you know, top to bottom, all six of these bowls I think are very compelling in their own way. And I'm going to watch all six of them. I don't really need to watch another bowl because these are the six that, that matter. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, those two days that new year's Eve and new year's day. I mean, that's, that's it. Like that's, that's all you need to see really, unless you have a, a horse in the race and in a, in a different school that you want to watch before. But uh, they did a really good job with, with the matchups that we're going to see that day and the days surrounding it. So it will be a very good bowl season. And we can just ignore the first 20 that happened because they're They need jokes. to take those 20 bowls and just put them down. These are the only six bowl games that should be played. And I don't think there should be another bowl game played. Yeah. I mean, do you know that the Mountain West has a bowl that they're going to play? Colorado State is going to play Nevada, and they've already played this year. It's two Mountain West teams playing against each other. Yeah. That's just stupid. That's not a bowl game. That's a conference game. Yeah, it makes no sense. I mean, there there are tons of just weird games at the start of this season. It's it, it's not fun. I think there are some five-loss teams in bowl games now. There are like 80 out of 120 or 125 teams. It, this is ridiculous. It's gotten out of hand. There needs to be 
We need to go to Congress and say, look, no bowl games other than these six. We need to make Congress it a we need to make it a national law or an executive order, something quick. We don't want to waste too much time. We got a lot of other things, and obviously, I'm just joking. Congress has much better things to do, unless they can get it done like really quick. But we need to get rid of all these bowl games. And the only cool part about the bowl games is that it forces teams from different conferences to play each other. Really good teams from different conferences to play each other because all of them are scared to play each other. So it forces some good interconference games. But other than that, they're all a waste of time except for the New Year's Six. Yeah, definitely. All right. The bowl games are absurd outside of the New Year's Six, but you want to know what's more absurd? is that the Golden State Warriors are 20-0 and 0 as of this recording, undefeated. That's not the absurd part. Luke Walton, his head coaching record is 0-0. Because he's an interim coach for Steve Kerr, all of the wins he accrues as an interim coach are credited to Steve Kerr. Now, Kerr has come out and... Spoken against this. He doesn't like the rule. He thinks they should be Waltons. This isn't a Kerr problem. This is an NBA obscure, stupid rule problem. You can probably already guess what I think of this. But Bob, how ridiculous is that? Yeah, it's pretty silly, but I understand why the rule is in place just for the the history of the game and all that. But when a coach is leading a team towards history to, to break a record. I, I think Adam Silver can easily step in and just make a little overruling and, and get Walton the, the credit that he deserves in, in the history book. So, uh, you know, I, I recognize that silly. I don't think it needs to be like a sweeping rule change. I just think it needs to be a one-time thing. Luke Walton, you get, you are credited for these wins because it is a historical, it, it is trending towards a historical feat. And that can be it. It can be really quick and painless, and and we can move on. Yeah, and like you, I understand why the rule exists. It's for the time when an interim coach just steps in for a day or two, coaches the team. He's just kind of holding down the fort. He's keeping the seat warm. He's not installing his system, things like that. I understand, you know, why the rule exists, and I agree with you. They shouldn't sweepingly change the rule because it's for the times where, like, a head coach has something come up. He can't be with his team. And the interim coach just steps in. Shouldn't get a credit for that win because the interim coach is just kind of doing what the coach does. But Luke Walton took over in the offseason because Steve Kerr had the, the back problems. Luke Walton has coached this team from day one. This right now, I know it's Steve Kerr's system. I know Steve Kerr is still the coach. But it is Luke Walton's team right now. He's doing all the work for 20 games. So what I suggest is if the head coach is out for an extended period of time, then the interim coach should get credit for the wins. And I don't know how they go about determining what that is, but I think there should be some metric that says, okay, at this point, you're no longer just holding the seat down. You're actually coaching. I mean, if you have to coach a team for more than a week or so, it kind of becomes your team a little bit. I think that's how they should go with this. I think that's kind of the compromise that should go here because Luke Walton has them at 20 and 0 it is absurd that he is not getting any credit in the record books other than his name on the team I'm talking wins and losses here I think that he should get credit for those wins yeah absolutely we're in agreement on this you know I don't think 
it's it's not a big deal unless it, it it's trending towards something historical. I mean, no no interim head coach is really no head coach really is going to worry about their record. But you know, Luke Walton's approaching history with with this team, and it, it, their their name is going to be entered in record books and is already entering record books as you know the third or fourth longest win streak in NBA history. So. He needs to be part of that. And I think Adam Silver is a very progressive commissioner. We've seen that in the few years he's been the commish. Uh, he, he can very easily and very quickly solve this problem with just a little bit of overruling. And if he needs owner support for that, I don't see why any owner would vote against it. Uh, maybe Dan Gilbert, because he likes to do that stuff and has been known to be a little bit bitter at times. But, you know, that's 29 out of 30 that you could get to vote behind you. So. Hey man, Dan Gilbert should not be bitter anymore. I think the NBA did him fine with the draft. I don't believe the draft is rigged, but if you believe the draft is rigged, then he certainly got more than his fair share for losing LeBron, and LeBron's back now. So all that bitterness should be aside, if there is any left, because LeBron's back, the Cavs are flying high, no more bitterness from Dan Gilbert. Let's just say that. Yeah, I, I know. I, I'm just saying like, I, he's the only person I could imagine with any kind of grudge towards Golden State at this point in terms of ownership. So, yeah, it, they can easily get it done. The NBA can get it done. And I think uh, if the Warriors keep on winning, we're going to see a rule change sometime this season if they set a record. Most definitely, most definitely. I think that... He should get credit for these wins as well. Hey, the 76ers finally won a game. They beat the Lakers. So the 76ers are no longer winless. It took them about 20 tries, but they finally got their first win. Yeah, that's good, good for them. You know, one down, uh, you know, let's try and get a win streak going or something. Like, you know, ride some momentum. Maybe you can win another game uh, within this month. Certainly. I. I don't, know, I don't know how I would bet that, but I, I think they're going to get to 10 this year. I think they'll at least get to 10. I'm confident in that. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. We're pre- predicting the, the worst team, how bad they're going to be. 10 wins sounds good to me, but, I mean, hey, this the Sixers like to go on losing streaks, and if they put together another one, you know they might not win. They might not win for a really long time. What if the Warriors go seventy-two and ten, and the 76ers go ten and seventy-two? They'd be perfect complements to each other. <laughs> Just one has to balance the other other out, I guess. All right. Well, we have jammed a ton into this podcast so far, but we would be remiss if we didn't at least mention some of the things that have gone on in baseball. Boston nabbed David Price. Arizona nabbed Zach Greinke. Today, the Dodgers just trade for Adronis Chapman, so a little bit of hot stove action going on, even though it's the winter, things are heating up in baseball. Bob, what do you think of some of these moves? Do you, do you have any thoughts? Do you think that uh, Arizona and Boston got good deals? Do you think the Dodgers should have traded for Chapman? What do you think? Well, mm, well, first off, the winter meetings are happening here where I'm living in Nashville, so I am going to go over there and try and talk the Indians into making some of my great trade ideas if I can find them. Um, those three moves are, are interesting. Uh, the Dodgers seem to be at the, at the focal point, uh, missing out on Granke and David Price. You know, Dodgers are, are big spenders. Then they go out and get Aroldis Chapman. I mean, they already had a really good closer. So, I mean, now you have a setup man and a, a really good setup man and a really good closer. But, you know, you got to get to those innings to 
for them to be worth anything the Dodgers have an offense issue and I, I think they need to go shopping for a bat more so than uh, getting a closer so that was interesting uh you know if they trade away a couple of prospects that you know that's fine the Dodgers can afford that Zach Greinke though 34 million dollars a year for the next six years he's approaching age 32 you know David Price he just turned 30 and you know he's getting paid 31 million dollars a year for the next six years so that looks a little bit better than Zach Greinke these are mega deals and for the Diamondbacks to just kind of come out of left field and steal it away from their NL West rival. I think that's a, a big coup for the Diamondbacks, keeping Granky off of that Dodgers roster. You know me, I'm never a fan of these huge mega deals, especially to pitchers in their 30s when they decline. You know, you only get a good return those first two or three years. So uh, it, it's interesting. I always love seeing where the money goes. Uh, Diamondbacks, though, just coming out of nowhere, I think is the big surprise for me. Yeah, I definitely didn't see the Diamondbacks offering that kind of notice. Zach Greinke, who is 32 years old, as you mentioned, kind of crazy that they're paying him that much money at that point in his career. We just saw CC Sabathia in New York, how that contract has been held around their necks for a while. It looked good at the time. They He opted out and he re-signed an even bigger one a couple years back, and now it is just murdering that team. Not as much because the Yankees can afford to spend, but still, I mean, that's a lot of money to pay someone who is not nearly as productive as when they signed him. Nationals, Diamondbacks, and Red Sox. Well, Red Sox, Sox should know this by now. They do this almost all the time. Those three teams, I mean, the National Science Scherzer last year, they're going to be struggling a little bit. I I just think that, that maybe they'll get a good return one or two years, but... You go down the line on these deals, it is going to bite them at some point. Yeah, and you already already see the dominoes falling. Jeff Samarja, ninety million contract with the Giants, and John Lackey, who was getting paid five hundred forty thousand dollars by the Cardinals, had a renaissance year. He's getting sixteen million dollars for the next two years to play for the Cubs. I think he's thirty eight years old now. Quite a payday, and you know the Cubs. We we talked about it at the end of the postseason that. You know, they're probably going to open up their vaults because they have a, a deep, some deep pockets, uh, some young guys, but they, they have not flexed that financial muscle. John Lackey, John Lester, Jake Arietta, you know, they're putting it together. I won't be surprised if they go out and add one of those bats that are on the market as well. No, certainly not. And the next domino to fall is probably Johnny Cueto. Wonder how much he's going to get. It's, it's certainly a good time to be a free agent in baseball because teams are balling out of control. And, uh, yeah, Lackey, I mean, Lackey's $8 million per year looks like a bargain compared to the numbers we just threw out a few seconds well, ago. Uh, it's it, it's 16 a year. It's a $32 oh, million dollar deal. Well, Annually, he'll mm, get 16 Okay, that's not as good. I'm sorry. I, I, I no, that's why I'm so surprised. <laughs> wow, 16 per year for a guy who's making five hundred k, And you're taking it from the Cardinals. You don't want to take guys from this. There are three teams you don't want to sign guys from. The Patriots in football. The Spurs in basketball and the Cardinals in baseball. Because those guys know when to sign a guy and when to let guys go. If you're signing guys away from that team, they're letting them go for a reason. I would not mess with that. Yeah, I mean, he's 37 right now. I think he'll be 38 by the time the season starts. Man, I can't I can't imagine that he's gonna earn that contract back. Though he did have a, a phenomenal year at age 37 with the with the Cardinals. 
uh, 16 million is a lot different than 500,000. You know, you take flyers on those kind of guys. You don't give them almost $20 million a year. Yeah. I mean, good for John Lackey. I'm happy for him. I'm very happy for him. He should be happy too. I don't think the Cubs will be happy in year two. Maybe they'll get year one out of him, but I don't think they'll be happy in year two. Another guy in the market yeah. I'm interested in is Scott Kazmir. He's always been kind of the quiet value pitcher, so it'll be interesting to see who gets him and how much he gets paid. Yeah, definitely. I mean, baseball. If if I have a, if I have a son, he's he's gonna go be an MLB pitcher because man, they make so much money and they don't put any stress on their body other than their elbow, which seems fine by me to make thirty million dollars a year. Easier said than done, man. I mean. A lot of people with the dream, hey, if you, you get them thrown against the, the mat early, maybe. I don't know, man. We're going to do like a rookie of the year kind of situation. <laughs> I'm going to have him accidentally break his arm. So you're going to break your son's arm. I, I, no, it's going to be an accident. I, but I it's going to be a quote-unquote quote, 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 accident. I see. I'm just messing with you. I know you're <laughs> not going to do that. That is not even funny to joke about, but. That is kind of crazy. That that movie, I have no idea how old that movie is, but I, I remember seeing that in, in the theaters. It was actually kind of a fun movie. I was also little too, so it's pro- probably be a little different if I watched it now. Yeah, I can't tell you the last time I watched it. Uh, we are just talking about it a, f- a few days ago with a friend. John Candy's in it. I, I did not remember that. Apparently he's the announcer. See, I get that movie confused with Angels in the Outfield all the time. Like I'm, I keep thinking I'm like, oh no, wait, that happened in Angels in the Outfield. No, that happened in Rookie of the Year. I get those two movies confused. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I, I don't really know. I, I honestly don't remember a whole lot of either of them. I just know one dude breaks his arm. Angels in the Outfield is a bunch of ghosts helping the kids catch balls. So, <laughs> wait, it's Christopher Lloyd too. He's like the lead angel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they all like flap their arms in the end and Danny Glover's the manager, so it's fun. Anyway, not to ruin the ending for Angels in the Outfield for you, but they do flap their arms in the end. Doesn't ruin too much of it. But anyway. That's, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> what are you talking about for 90s, 90s kids baseball movies? Here's the thing, though. It's a 90s kids baseball movie. It's at least 20 years old. I mean, if, there's. I think the spoiler expiration date is... Uh, gone past and i didn't really spoil that much they just flapped their arms a little bit so you'll have to see whether or not they win in the movie but anyway we have jam-packed a lot in this podcast we even we veered off into the entertainment side of things talks a little movies with you guys some timeless classics there so we're really getting our money's worth today but thank you all for listening, and please come back to FenleyRoadSports.com. Subscribe to What Are You Talking About via iTunes. Just search Family Road Sports into iTunes. Subscribe, and if you feel so obliged, please give us a good rating because we would very much appreciate it, and we'd like you for it. So please subscribe to our podcast, What Are You Talking About? Come back to FenleyRoadSports.com. We'll have some blogs up for you. And subscribe to our Twitter feed, FenleyRDSports. Subscribe to our Instagram feed, FenleyRO80 Sports. And most importantly, come back again next week for another edition of What Are You Talking About? Presented by FenleyRoadSports.com. We'll talk to you then. All right, I'll see you, Chris. Take it easy, Bob.